Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, we hit a milestone. This is our 50th Why Are They So Angry episode. So it's fitting we do something a little different for this show. Now, our podcast is dedicated to describing and documenting systemic racism in America, but Black African Americans don't spend all their time wallowing in stories of slavery, oppressive situations or laws or microaggressions. In reality, we're a people who enjoy celebrating, traveling, and enjoying leisure activities as much as anyone. In fact, even in the darkest times of segregation, Black codes, and Jim Crow, our ancestors, grandparents, and parents vacationed and even created destination getaways for laughter and leisure, much as we do today. There's an old saying that we Black folks can't swim, which some people believe because <laughs> it's because African-Americans were segregated from public swimming pools and beaches. But in actuality, Black African-Americans enjoyed and created beach destinations and shore living. So that sw- that thing about swimming, it's, it's just a big myth. It is an erroneous myth that we talked about in our episode on public pools. So I'm glad we're using this special 50th episode to turn that myth on its head. Now, in that episode, about public pools, we discussed in detail how far city governments and officials were willing to go to keep pools segregated and eventually close them all together, as well as the link that's links that some white citizens would go to protect what they would consider their turf from, per, from the perceived threat of black swimmers. All of that feeds into that weird stereotype about Black people not being able to swim to the point that even Black people believe it. Well, truth be told, Courtney, Black African-Americans actually do have a history of being able to swim. And a lot of that swimming happened at historic Black beaches in America. Some of these have seen gentrification and lack of restoration, but a few still remain as active and flourishing destinations. Yes, and I cannot wait to cover these places. And our hope is that for some of you that you can take a visit or at least research these places. So grab your sunglasses, swimsuits, a good summer read and a beach bag and come with us as we take a tour of historically black beaches. Well, Courtney, we're going to start with some historic beaches that 
uh, are now less developed or that no longer exist. So we're kind of going to go back in history before we jump into the present. Now, these beaches all have a significant history. Now, one of them is the historic Chicken Bone Beach in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Now, it's located on the long stretch of the Atlantic City, New Jersey shoreline just south of downtown. And Chicken Bone Beach was designated as the exclusively African-American section of the beach around 1900. Famous Black entrepreneurs began to provide entertainment during the summer evenings, including performers such as Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Jordan, the Mills Brothers, Jackie Moms Mabley, and even the Club Harlem Showgirls. So it was quite a beach to be on. Another exciting beach was the Idlewild Beach in Northwest Michigan. Now, this was a place apart known as, quote, Black Eden. Now, here, Black writers, thinkers, physicians, and entrepreneurs, they all found a safe haven where they could escape the toxic weight of racism and segregation and just simply relax. Now, the followers of people like Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, the NAACP, and even Marcus Garvey, they basically controlled the township government. So they ran things up there in Ottawa. Another beach that is no longer around, but very popular in its day, was the Inkwell in Santa Monica, California. It was a popular beach in Southern California through the middle decades of the 20th century. It was derogatorily called the Inkwell by nearby whites, the, in reference to the skin color of the beachgoers. Uh, it was situated near Phillips Chapel Christian Methodist Episcopal Church and the first black church in Santa Monica. On February 7, 2008, the city of Santa Monica officially recognized the Inkwell and a gentleman by the name of Nick Gabaldon, the first documented surfer of African Mexican American descent with a landmark monument at Bay Street and Oceanfront Walk. Now, here's another historic beach, which was Freeman Beach in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's one of the few beaches that Blacks could go to and enjoy themselves in that state. The beach had a restaurant, a dance hall with food and service provided by the Freeman family. The beach even included bath facilities and a rock-covered parking lot. So it was pretty much ahead of its time. Another um, beach that was very famous at the time, founded in two, uh, 1902, was Cars Beach in Annapolis, Maryland. And it was founded by the formerly enslaved couple, Frederick Carr and his wife, Mary Wells Carr. They had purchased 100 acres of waterfront farmland on the Annapolis Neck at the end of what is now Edgewood Road. In 1926, they founded Cars Beach as a beach retreat for Black families, day camps, concerts and church outings. Their daughter Florence Carr Sparrow also created the adjoining Sparrows Beach in 1931. And in the late afternoons and well into the night, crowds would fill the Cars Beach Pavilion for rollicking dances and concerts. And some of those same famous performers that I talked about earlier showed up at Cars Beach. Now, Here's another beach that a lot of people don't know about because of its untimely demise. Uh, they've never heard of a place called Pacific Beach Club of Huntington Beach, California. Now this was built in the mid 1920s and the Pacific Beach Club was designed to accommodate Southern California's growing black middle class. The club was set on seven acres 
and included a bathhouse that could accommodate up to 1,500 people. A ballroom was there, a pavilion, and a clubhouse that could take in 2,000 folks. It boasts a restaurant, a grocery store, a drugstore, and a 200-unit tent city equipped with water, electricity, and gas. Now, even though all of this was going on and would be benefiting Black folks, the resort's developers faced great resistance and setbacks from the very beginning. And sadly, two weeks before the Pacific Beach Club's grand opening, arsonists burned it to the ground. Oh, wow. And, and no arrests were ever made. Typical, typical. Yeah, what can I say? Now, the last historic beach I want to talk about is Bruce's Beach, which is now called uh, Manhattan Beach, uh, California. When the city of Manhattan Beach was incorporated in 1912, a two-block area along the ocean was set aside for Black African-Americans where Charles and Willa Bruce established a beach resort. Now, over time, uh, Black families bought properties near the resort and built their own summer homes. Eventually, though, through a shady land deal and imminent domain, the family lost ownership of this valuable beachfront property. And I think you have a little more information about Bruce's Beach. I do. If that name kind of tingles in your ears, listeners, if you think back to one of our early podcasts, the series on land heist and stolen property, we did a whole episode on Bruce's Beach, um, which is Manhattan's Beach. But I'm not going to give you the full story, just a brief overview, because, of course, we always want you to go back and listen to that episode. Now, Willa and Charles Bruce were among some of the first black people to sell settle in the area that would become Bruce's Beach and then Manhattan Beach in California in 1912. They bought two parcels of land on Highland Avenue for a little less than $2,000. And like Carol said, they had so many different accommodations, beach uh, front lodge, cafe, dance hall, cabanas, everything you'd want to have to have a beautiful California day on the beach. But like we said, imminent uh, domain issues with the city, racist attacks almost immediately after opening caused Bruce's Beach to be closed down in 1924. Now, the local government said it was because the land was condemned and, you know, they were going to make it into a park. But that never happened. The real reason is that white neighbors resented the resort's growing popularity and prosperity. And that was kind of linked to that other uh, beach club. They went hand in hand when they saw Bruce's beach expand and that other place coming. Something had to go. Now, the Bruce family and other people who own property in that area sued, claiming that they were being victims of a racially motivated removal campaign, which was true. But in the end, all they got was $14,500 and their lodge was raised in 1927 and no one else was able to build there again. Now, when we covered the story, we ended it on that cliffhanger, hoping that the family would eventually get their land, which is now almost worth $75 million back to them. Well, listeners, I have a great 
a great update. The LA County Board of Supervisors, led by member Janice Hahn, have become aware of the campaign that was started last year, you know, during the civil unrest with George Floyd and everyone getting to learn more about systemic racism. They began looking into how to rectify a century-old wrong, which was done to the Bruce family. And here's a quote by a supervisor, Han. Bruce's Beach became a place where Black families traveled from far and wide to being able to enjoy a simple pleasure, a day at the beach. And this is something that she announced, leaning into the fact this was one of the only places Blacks could go, and it was taken from them. So they really wanted to right that wrong. Now, the and she went on to say that the Bruce's had their California dream stolen from them and it was an injustice that was inflicted on not only Willa and Charles Bruce but their generations of descendants after they would have been millionaires if they had been able to keep this property now the city's ability to sell or transfer the property was actually blocked by regulations and it required a legislative change to be able to get that property back to the family. Now, the California State Senate passed the final vote on Thursday, September the 9th, which was the last day of the legislative session, to allow uh, L.A. County to return the beach to the Bruce family. So it's believed that this is the first time land has ever been returned to a Black family as a reparation for past discrimination. And California Governor Gavin Newsom is definitely expected to sign the bill to get that back to the family. This now, is historic. This is really a historic beach and a historic sesh, uh, decision. I am so excited. And just like a Bruce uh, family member spokesman, Dwayne Shepard said on that day, that September 9th, he said, I'm walking on water right now. I'm elated, which is what he told the Daily Breeze. Now, if you also remember our episode, we talked about Kavon Ward, who was the mom that moved to the beach and had faced some racial discrimination of her own. And she started doing her research and gathering people to bring attention to Bruce's Beach. She said that in her NBC News interview that she was ecstatic and that she would never have fathomed that it would happen so quickly. She was prepared to fight for years if not decades. And that's usually how those things go that people don't see this in their lifetime. So I think this is amazing and awesome. And hopefully, Aunt Carol, maybe with some wishful thinking, I'm thinking maybe our podcast sh shined a little bit more light and awareness on the Bruce family and their beach. And we helped just a little bit of getting that back to them. Well, I don't know if we did, but one thing is for sure. Awareness is what it's all about, Courtney. If enough people shine the light on inequities, eventually there can be positive resolutions. And boy, that was pretty fast. Now, just like Bruce's Beach, there's another beach that deserves a deeper dive, no pun intended. And that's the iconic beach known as Oak Bluffs, on Martha's Vineyard, that posh, posh Martha's Vineyard. Now this beach has a storied history as the playground and summer home of black African-Americans, but its status is very different than Bruce's Beach. So I think you have a story about it, Courtney. I do. Now, when people think of Martha, Martha's Vineyard, sadly, 
they don't often think about Black people. This idea of a wealthy social class of African Americans living and vacationing in this very, like we said, posh spot on the East Coast seems far-fetched. And Black people just don't do that. That's normally the sentiment. Like, oh, Black people don't go up there. We don't go to places like that. But we have, and we've been doing it for over 100 years years. So today, instead of my normal thrilling story of murder and mayhem, we're (laughs) going to do some unlearning while I walk you through the history of Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts, known to some as the inkwell of the East Coast. Now, if you're a millennial like me, the inkwell may ring some bells because it was a movie, a period piece. It's set in the 60s with Lorenz Tate and Jada Pinkett Smith as his dream girl, his love interest. And she lived in Martha's Vineyard, her family vacation there. So that might ring a bell. Um, Also, the new show by Lee Daniels, Our Kind of People, is set right in this area. So if you like those kind of rich shows and stuff like that, this is a true space and a true place that I'm going to tell you the history of. But that show is set there as well. Now, to get an idea of where Martha's Vineyard is actually located, because some people kind of get it confused with the Hamptons somewhere, it's situated south of Cape Cod. Um, it's a Massachusetts island, and you can only get there by boat or by little jet, little planes, little jet planes. Now, while today the Obamas and Oprah Winfrey, even the late Maya Angelou, cite this location in Martha's Vineyard in Oak Bluff as one of their favorite vacation spots, it's not new. It's not a new discovery. Like I said, Black people have been coming here for almost a century. Now, what many people don't know is that it was a haven for runaway slaves and indentured servants. So those roots run really deep. Now, beyond its beautiful beaches and social status that the communities have claimed in Martha's Vineyards, it was, like I said, a safe haven for African-Americans because most places up the East Coast, if you were looking for a place to frolic and have fun on the beach, did not allow Black people to do the simple thing of having a day on the beach. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Now, in the 1890s, that's when African-Americans really started to navigate to Oak Bluffs and the Inkwell. Um, And just like the Inkwell in California, uh, it was given that name by nearby whites referencing the skin color of beachgoers. But Black people now have turned that pejorative uh, name, that odious name into something of pride. The beauty and shades of Black people filling up this small beach. Looks like a gorgeous inkwell, ink that you'd want to write a love letter with because I've seen pictures and it's gorgeous. Now, in the late 18th century, there was a Methodist Baptist revival. So people were really at a fervor for religion, especially the denominations of of Methodist and Baptist. And people would go to Oak Bluff, black and white, to go to church meetings and church revivals. 
And people actually not only went there for the Lord, but to see the beauty of his work on the beach. And people had secular things that they wanted to do, dance, hang out, you know, go to a restaurant. And soon the servant, the black servants and visitors to of the island began to purchase summer homes for themselves because they wanted to, you know, take in that beauty. Now, although racial discrimination and restrictive covenants persisted on the island, don't get it twisted, it was not a haven of integration yet, that small portion of Oak Bluffs was that safe haven. Now, much of the property purchased by these early African-American islanders continues to be owned by their descendants. So that's that generational wealth. Now, in the 1920s, African-American Islanders began to offer accommodations in their smaller homes to attract more African-American and Black visitors from Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, and other Northeastern cities. Now, as the African-American population grew more prosperous during and after World War II, so the baby boomers that are listening, this is your time, right? After World War II, that expansion of wealth even went into Black families. They began to buy vacation homes, part-time and permanent residents, expanding that once small Black population into a, a quite large one for that area. Now, in Oak Bluffs, especially uh, middle class black vacationers, they would rent affordable priced cottages for less than $30,000. Now, from the 50s into the early 70s, they continued to do that and purchase and pass down through their family. Now, by 2010, many of these properties that were, you know, $30,000 then are, were worth 15 to 20 times their original sale prices, making Oak Bluffs arguably the wealthiest Black resort community in the country. Ooh, wee, that is too rich for my blood, but boy. So cool. when people say when people say bad and bougie, that's what they're talking about. Oak uh, Bluffs. Oak Bluffs. <laughs> Oak Bluffs. All righty. Now, Black women made up the very first entrepreneurs that played a pivotal role in attracting and accommodating the growing number of Black visitors. And Shearer Cottage, founded by Charles and Henrietta Shearer in 1912 as a summer inn, they kind of started that trend. It started as a laundry a service, a delivery laundry service, where you just drop your clothes off and they would do your laundry that catered specifically to African-Americans because even back then, people wouldn't even do Black people's laundry, even if it was a laundry service. Mm. But the Shearer family got together, they opened their laundry business, and then they got the idea for a for the beautiful Shearer Cottage. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to tell you the history of this 100-year-old cottage. Well, Courtney, I bet our listeners are intrigued and probably even a little surprised to hear about this Black African-American presence on Martha's Vineyard. So after the break, I can imagine you've got some surprising history to tell about Shearer cottage. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism. See it? 
say it, confront it. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, Courtney, we're back. And I have grabbed the beach blanket and umbrella and some sunglasses, and I'm heading down to the beach so I can sit back and hear what you're going to tell us about Sheer Cottage. Well, just like I promised, everybody sit back and relax. I hope you have a cool drink in your hand so I can tell you this story. Now, Charles Shear was born a slave, an enslaved person on a plantation in Spanish in Spanish Oaks, Appomattox County, Virginia, on January the 10th, 1854. Now, Charles was the son of his owner. Um, that's a dark part of the story. But Charles's father was also his owner. And his mother was an enslaved woman by the name of Matilda Giles. Um, now, Charles's wife, Henrietta Merchant, she was born a free woman of color in 1859 to Madison and Elizabeth George Merchant. And at the time, the Merchant family was one of the oldest free black families in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, after the Civil War, Charles lived in Lynchburg, Virginia, and he worked as a laborer before attending Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute in Hampton, Virginia. Now it's known as Hampton University. Go Pirates. So we have our HBCU connection. Mm-hmm. Now, he graduated in 1880, and his soon-to-be wife, Henrietta, also attended Hampton Institute and later served as one of the school's matrons. Now, Charles and Henrietta got married in 1884, and Charles taught at Hampton for a while upon re- relocating to Lynchburg, and then they both, where they both taught elementary school. So we have a history, we have some teachers. Okay, right so they're a pretty prominent family, because usually if Black like African-Americans were um, educators, that um, meant they were fairly upwardly mobile. Yes. And that connection of him being in married into the merchant family and then being a part of the free people of color, you're absolutely right in Carol. Now, when they moved away from Virginia, it was around 1891 and they purchased a home near Boston in Everett, Massachusetts. Now, Charles, who was a uh, college educated and a teacher, only found work in the hospitality industry, serving as head waiter, which is nothing to frown at back then. My grandfather was a maitre d', and that's where you got all the news, all the tea, all the gossip, and you can help other Black people get work. So don't frown down on the the head waiter. And he worked at two well-known Boston establishments, Young's Hotel and Parker House. And yes, that's the Parker House where Parker House rolls were born. So he worked at those. Those are so (laughs) delicious, so delicious. And so he worked at both of those establishments. Now in 1893, Charles and Henrietta joined Boston's historic Tremont Temple Baptist Church, which is often credited as one of the first integrated churches in America. Now, Charles was profoundly religious. He was one of those people that was in that religious fervor, that coming back to the church in the late 18th century. And he deeply appreciated his education that he received at Hampton University. He credited his success in life to his education and his religious conviction. 
Now, he was a staunch Baptist and he went to Oak Bluffs to those tent revivals and church meetings. And it was then called Cottage City. But he fell in love with that area and especially the Baptist Temple Park. And it's in a location called East Chop, which is a portion of Oak Bluffs. Now, both Charles and Henrietta just fell more and more in love with Martha's Vineyard and the peace and the beauty that they found there. So they bought their first property on the island in the late 1800s, so around 1893 as well. Now, in August 1903, they made their second purchase on the island, which was a home overlooking Baptist Temple Park. And that's where the inn at Shearer Cottage stands today. Now, in order to help uh, Henrietta support her family vacationing on Martha's Vineyards, that's when she opened the one-story um, log structure called the Longhouse on newly purchased property land, and that's where she started her laundry business. She hired several women, and they specialized in what was called fancy work. So if you want to know those big puffy petticoats, it took someone by hand to fluff out each ruffle and have it stand as it should. Mm. And these women were the best of the best when it came to that. Now, ever an entrepreneur, Henrietta said, we're not going to stop just at doing fancy work. She provided a pickup and delivery service with her own horse and wagon. These two are ambitious. I am so impressed. They are a power couple. Now, in 1912, the couple expanded their home overlooking Baptist Temple Park. And it was at that time they opened a 12-room seasonal inn which is the Shearer Cottage. And it opened in conjunction with the laundry. The inn catered to African-Americans, like we said, who at the time were not welcomed at other island establishments. They provided lodging, meals, laundry, and even catered events. Now the inn thrived. And on any given day, the dining room was filled with 50 or more guests socializing and enjoying cooked meals by the members of the Sheriff family. Henrietta's horse and wagon originally used to drop off laundry was now used to pick up guests to the end to transport them back and forth. So Uber before Uber, Lyft before <laughs> Lyft, Henrietta had the blueprint on how to get her people to her cottage. Now, Henrietta's laundry business closed in 1917, but the inn remains open to this day, and it's been owned by generation after generation of the Shearer family. So I love to hear that that just stayed in their family. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. if you go to their website, the Shearer Cottage website, which is www.shearercottage right now, you can not only see the beautiful history and their hand, they have handwritten letters between Henrietta and Charles, not, not only talking about how much they loved each other, but how much, you know, making business plans, talking about their education, how they want to raise their children. So it's all there. And um, you can also go to the National African American Museum in Washington, D.C. They have an exhibit called The uh, Importance of Place. And they also uh they also talk about the Shearers and the Shearer Cottage. Right now, the Shearer Cottage is going over a renovation. So you can't stay there now, but you can pre-book and, you know, go and visit this historic site because it will be open for guests next season in 2022. That's what the website is saying. So please check them out. 
and the beautiful inn at Shearer Cottage. Wow, Courtney, I'll tell you, the Shearer Cottage sounds absolutely delightful. And your Uncle Clyde and I are always looking for unusual and special places to vacation. And um, you've just given us one right off the bat. So the fact that this is going to be ready in 2022, I'm going to start pre-booking our trip to Shearer Cottage and Martha's Vineyard so I can get that history. Um, what a delight, what a delight. But what's even more delightful is the history of how it came to be. The utter determination and entrepreneurial spirit of Charles and Henrietta Shear. it's just, it's inspirational. I, I'm taken aback. It truly is. And it flies in the face of those stereotypes that at that time were being said about Black people, that they were shiftless and lazy and didn't want to work. It flies in the face of what people believed and may still believe. So thank you, Charles and Henrietta, for keeping that alive. Now, in Carol, one of our favorite historians, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, who's the director of the Hutchins Center for African-American Research at Harvard, had his own quote about his own Black beach experience. He said, when I was growing up, there were only three places where Black people could summer on the beach. Martha's Vineyard, which is Oak Bluffs, Sag Harbor, and there was a place on the Chesapeake Highland, uh, Highland Beach. So, Ann Carol, can you tell us more about these safe spaces? Yes, Courtney, I can. Some of these beaches, like Oak Bluffs, unlike the ones I told you about earlier, they're still in operation today, which is so exciting. For instance, there is Highland Beach, and it's the oldest of all the resort towns in America. It was founded by Charles and Laura Douglas in 1893. Now that last name Douglas should ring a bell with some of our listeners and, for, and with you. Charles was the son of the well-known and renowned abolitionist Frederick Douglas. Oh, this, that's awesome. Yes, it is. It is. This beach is it's located about 35 miles outside of Washington, D.C., and it was the very first Black African-American owned resort in the history of America. Now, when the Douglases were denied entry into a restaurant on Chesapeake Bay, Charles Douglas decided to delve into the real estate industry, and he began buying beachfront property and selling lots to his friends and family. Now, some of its earliest purchasers were notable African-American politicians in the D.C. Baltimore area, including senators and congressmen, Judge Robert Terrell and his wife, Mary Terrell, the famous uh, Terrell uh, power couple. Uh, she was the first Black judge in the District of Columbia. Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, and singer Paul Robeson all made Highland Beach their summer home as well. Now, when Charles Douglas died in 1920, its ownership was transferred to his son, Haley Douglas, who in 1922 led a movement to make Highland Beach the first African-American incorporated municipality in the state's history. Now, today, there are about 90 homes still owned and occupied by descendants of the original settlers of Highland Beach and the Fred Frederick Douglass Museum and Cultural Center, known as Twin Oaks, is a local attraction at this distinctive resort destination. So for those of you who love history or are in love with the Harlem Renaissance and the Harlem Renaissance glitterati, that might be the beach, the historic beach for you to visit. 
It could be. It could be. Now, another notable beach is American Beach, which is on Amelia Island. Now, it was founded in 1935 and is Florida's first, Florida's first African-American beach. It's located in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, and it's a, a tourist destination that was founded by the first Black millionaire in Florida, a man named Abraham Lincoln Lewis, who also owned the Afro-American Life Insurance Company. Now, just like a lot of these other beaches uh, were founded because of segregation, Lewis created the beach in defiance of Jim Crow laws. And uh, he wanted to make a safe haven that his friends and employees could peacefully enjoy themselves. Now, the streets along the beach are all named after the uh, Black African-American founders of this community and their families. Now, as tourism grew, the beach became known as, quote, the Negro Ocean Playground. And it was sprinkled with restaurants, lodging, entertainment venues, just about anything you could want. And on any given weekend, you might see Ray Charles, Zora Neale Hurston, or even Hank Aaron out having a good time on the beach. Now, Unfortunately, after it was struck by Hurricane Dora in 1964, the beach began to decline and many of its tourists began vacationing elsewhere, you know, after the Civil Rights Act desegregated beaches. But it remains a popular destination and historians and preservationists have been committed to preserving its heritage. Uh, and they're doing this through the American Beach Museum, which documents all the history of this fascinating place. Well, as someone who has family in Florida and has been to Florida for all the big type of attractions um, and parks, this place is something that has piqued my interest. So I'm definitely going to be looking into and encouraging others to make this the beach stop next summer. Sounds like a plan. Now, as we travel north along the Atlantic coast, we encounter Sag Harbor, which we heard about a little bit earlier. Now, most of us have heard of the luxurious destination known as the Hamptons, and Sag Harbor is the Black African-American wing of this popular and affluent beachfront. It was an enclave for generations beginning in the early 20th century. Now, after World War II, during segregation, of course, Sag Harbor developed a robust community of Black African-Americans. Working class Black families were able to purchase land and start development in the area. Now, over the years, Sag Harbor has been able to fight off gentrification and property development and keep its roots intact because developers are salivating to get their hands on this land. Keeping its identity, though, has remained very important to the Black residents, and it is still a community of middle-class families with a population of doctors, lawyers, and other professionals. Well, Dr. Gates did mention Sag Harbor in his interview as one of those Black luxurious safe spaces, especially after World War II. And I'm glad they're not letting gentrification or those land grabbers destroy the historic significance and beauty of this location. I'm glad to hear that too, Courtney. We've got to fight for what's ours and, and keep what's important. Just like the other posh beach areas like Martha's Vineyard and the Hamptons, Myrtle Beach has an exclusive reputation but Black African-Americans have made their mark here as well at Atlantic Beach. Now it's known as the Black Pearl and it's located between Myrtle Beach and North Myrtle Beach. And Atlantic Beach remains the only current Black African-American owned beach in the nation. 
Now, many of the properties are black owned and operated, which include hotels, gift shops, restaurants, and nightclubs. And get this, Atlantic Beach hosts Black Bike Week every year, which draws large crowds of black African-American bikers to its shores. Oh, now that sounds like a whole lot of fun, especially if you're a biker, you might want to check out that Atlantic Beach Black Bike Week. Now, the next beach uh, that we're going to talk about has a very special place in my heart because it's where my in-laws have called home since before the Civil War, especially one particular island, St. Helena Island. So, A. Carol, I'll let you take it away. Well, I'm interested in this area too, Courtney, since both my parents have roots in South Carolina, your grandparents, of course, and possibly because of those roots, um, there's a Geechee Gullah connection for us since I often heard my grandmother referred to as a Geechee. Now, the Gullah Geechee Islands off South Carolina's coast offer a nice mixture of beach destinations. Hilton Head, for example, and the Charleston area are both areas which offer a historic mix. The area known as the Low Country is the site of Gullah tradition. Gullah Geechees have preserved their history for more, uh, more than any other African-American community in the United States. They're descendants of Central and West Africans, and they were enslaved together on these isolated islands, which stretch along the U.S. coastline from North Carolina down to St. John's, Florida. Now, the Gullah Geechee developed a Creole language, and today they continue to preserve African practices in arts, crafts, agriculture, and edible cuisine. Now, the Gullah Heritage Trail tour on Hilton Head Island includes a place called Mitchville. It's the first freedman village in the United States. And the Gullah Geechee Visitor Center in Beaufort is also just a quick little drive away. Now, you talked about St. Helena, and there's a very special uh, place there called the Penn Center. It's a former school for freed Sea Island slaves, and it offers several tours, presentations, and a museum which exhibits the history of the school. Now, if you're visiting the Charleston, South Carolina area, the McLeod Plantation, Avery Research Center for African-American History and Culture, and the Gullah Tours are also three things that gather up and pretty much capture the area's history for you to see how the, these uh, seaboard cities or seaboard communities developed. Well, my mother-in-law and I have a date to go to the Penn Center on my next visit to St. Helena Island. So I cannot wait to ask her tons of questions, eat some really great food, and learn more about all the beauty and history of the people and that land. Well, Courtney, I may have to join you on that date since St. Helena Island is on my travel bucket list. Well, Courtney, as you can see, and I hope our listeners can see, it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to being Black African Americans. I hope this excursion to these beaches shows that laughter and leisure are big parts of our lives, even as we navigate through America's systemic racism. We don't let that control our ever waking hour, but we take in the world and try to experience all it has to offer despite obstacles and setbacks. And I can't agree with you more, Aunt Carol. So if we've given you some vacation destinations for next summer or 
if this fall, please listen to our podcast as you travel down the road. If you want to listen to old podcasts, new podcasts, or even connect with us via social media, visit us on our website, which is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it. <laughs>